There is no such thing as a perfect family. Every family is made up of sinners. And when sinners relate to one another within any social unit, there's going to be problems. But there are problems, and there are problems, as they say. What social scientists classify as dysfunctional family problems. It's a dangerous phrase, I think, and we don't use it very often, but families are too easily labeled dysfunctional whenever they do not meet a social worker's subjective criteria for what he or she believes a family should be this week. And that's always changing. But granting that a functional family is never a perfect family, we may identify two objective biblical standards that are operative in all functional families. The first, a functional family honors the distinctive roles that God assigns to husbands, to wives, to parents, to children. When husbands do not honor their calling to lovingly and sacrificially lead and protect their homes, when wives do not honor their calling to submit to their husbands and to manage their homes, when parents fail to authoritatively train and discipline and selflessly love their children, when children do not own their divine calling to obey and honor their parents, dysfunction always results. Secondly, The members of a functional family relate to one another in the outworking of their unique roles with loyal, compassionate love. I think these two ideas will be seen. Functional distinctiveness and devoted love distinguishing functional families. And that would include not only individual families, but also the family of the local church. As a church, we must learn to relate to one another within our distinctive roles with the unifying spirit of a loyal and loving family. This is our calling. And this truth emerges from 1 Timothy chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul instructs his understudy, Timothy, concerning his relationship to the Ephesian church. Paul highlights Timothy's role as authoritative leader throughout this book. Remember back to chapter 3 and verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This is perhaps the very theme of the book, the core message. And Timothy is called to be the one who gives leadership to see this church function faithfully. This household of God. That is, this family of Christ. In chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul says to Timothy, This charge I entrust to you. This charge of leading the church to operate according to God's directions. In chapter 4 and verse 6, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. That is, Timothy is to instruct the church, to put these ideas out before them and how they are to function as the family of God. In chapter 4 and verse 11, you are to command and teach these things. There's authoritative word. To lay out to the assembly, this is what God says. This is His truth. It is to be honored here within our family. He was to labor to establish a functional church household. Now how is Timothy to render this leadership? How is he to give this direction to the church? In chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, Paul gives us a look at the kind of relationships that characterize a biblically functional local church family. We find in the first two verses the nature of interpersonal relationships within the family of God. Notice how this plays out, verse 1 of chapter 5, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, and younger women like sisters in all purity. So first of all, Timothy's relationship to the older men. Now remember, Timothy is a young man, chapter 4 and verse 12. As leader of the assembly, he will need to confront and to correct older men from time to time. Remembering the situation there where age was highly revered, 
And it would have put Timothy in a fairly difficult position at times. But Paul says, look at those men, discern their age in relationship with yours, and if they are substantially older than you, treat them as fathers. In fact, it is to correct them as fathers. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. We'll look at those two words in just a moment. But as he discerns their age, he is to relate to them as one relates to his father. Now, of course, this is assuming as a godly son relates to his father. It seems to me there's basically two ways to correct your dad. I've witnessed it many times, sadly, in many homes. I've witnessed it on the street, where one of the ways of correcting your father is to be in a rage and to issue a severe and harsh rebuke, language that is hurtful and demeaning. The word that we find here in verse 1, rebuke, is that is describing exactly that kind of behavior. Rebuke can be used in a good way, but the Greek word behind this translation is a harsh, severe, critical, angry kind of rebuke. Do not talk to an older man that way, Timothy, says Paul. There's another way that we can rebuke our fathers. I shudder at the thought of correcting my dad. That is something that just doesn't come across my page. But I can say if I ever had to, to sit down and to correct him, I would do so very respectfully and very gently because he's my dad. And I revere him. And I should. Now, Timothy... There's older men in the assembly that aren't your dad. But with all due respect to them, treat them as if they are. Gently, respectfully, appropriately. Encourage them. The word can be translated at times, exhort, which is a little bit stronger of a term. But in some way, we are to understand here that they are not to be dealt with harshly but respectfully. Don't rebuke. Encourage. Exhort honorably. This is how he's to relate to the older men. And relating to the younger men, he is to treat them, we find here in verse 1, as brothers. To treat the younger men like brothers. Now that word treat, depending on the translation that you have, but in our ESV here, the word treat is not really in the original language. Almost every Translation will put some word in there, but actually it's taking the word from rebuke. Don't rebuke, but exhort. Exhort or encourage older men as fathers. Exhort or encourage younger men as brothers is the idea. So the treat gives us the idea, helps us to smooth out the sentence. But consider here Timothy, who is a younger man and is invested with immense responsibility in the ancient church. It would be easy for him to look down on those who were his age or younger. But as the church is a family, it is never productive for one brother to play the part of father with the other brothers. Timothy is not to pull rank. He's not to flaunt his high position. As members of the family of God, the younger men of the assembly are indeed his brothers in Christ. And he is to relate to them in that spirit. I'm your brother. As I come and talk to you to correct you, to straighten out the doctrine that you're holding to, or to speak to you about your practice in the church, I sit with you as a brother in Christ. Let's talk. So as the leader of the church, he may need this authoritative correction, but he is to do so not with the air of a superior, but with the spirit of a brother. Thirdly, relating to older women, verse 2. Older women like mothers, that is, relate to them, or again, don't rebuke them, but encourage them like mothers. Again, harsh treatment is entirely ruled out. He's to relate to the older women with the respect that a godly son affords to his mother. Now, Again, many sons treat their mothers very disrespectfully and very dishonorably. That's not, of course, what he means. He means as a, as a godly man would treat his mother with dignity, with respect, 
with gracious words, so you are to relate to the older women in the assembly. There's a beautiful word that Paul gives at the end of the book of Romans. Do you remember it? He says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Greet also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Isn't that a great word? There's this older woman there in the assembly that treated Paul like a son. And he appreciated that and related to her in that way. Think about the older women, says Paul to Timothy, and treat them like mom. Number four, relating to younger women. The end of verse two, again, follows in that same line, but there's added here a phrase, younger women like sisters in all purity. In all purity. The word can be used broadly, but it carries a sexual connotation here, I think. And I think, again, this is a beautiful, constructive word of counsel. Treat the younger women as sisters. Let's think on that for a moment. Sisters, Timothy is not to ignore the younger women of the assembly as if they weren't there, as if they don't matter to him. He's to treat them as sisters. He's not to entirely brush off their pastoral care to others. Now, of course, the older women in the assembly will have a distinct and more involved relationship with them, and that is only appropriate. But he's not going to brush them off as if they aren't there. Nor is he to blush when he sees them as if they are nothing more than walking temptation. And beyond doubt, he is to do nothing that even hints of sensual impropriety. His words to them, his looks, his interaction is to be warm, engaging, protective, but never flirtatious or overly intimate. He will maintain an appropriate physical and emotional distance out of respect for them and out of reverence for the testimony of Christ displayed in the assembly. Treat them like sisters is the simple way of saying that. It's beautiful advice. And we're talking about real life here. This was an issue in the ancient church, as we see particularly in Paul's second letter to Timothy. This is an issue in the church of our day. Pastors, leaders, indeed all men of the assembly need to treat the younger women as sisters. I personally know a youth pastor who would take girls home after youth activities and begin to make out with them in the car before he dropped them off at their home. I know a person that has done this. I personally know another youth pastor who slept with two girls in his youth group. I personally know a senior pastor who fondled a young woman in his church. And there are other pastors who will not even look at the young women in their church. We're talking about real live things. I don't have a broad circle of influence. These are things I just know about, about people that I know. It's horrifying. And if we would just take Paul's word to heart, we would be preserved from these kinds of sins. Treat them like sisters. And I think this applies, of course, not only to the leadership of the church, not only to the young men in the church as they relate to the young women in the church, but to all of us, to all men in the church as we relate toward women. We've done a fair amount of teaching recently to our young women about a way, the ways in which they can cause temptation to the men of the church. And that is an area we need to carefully consider. But leaving that aside for now, when we deal with the men of the church, it's important that we treat the women here as sisters. You do not take double takes of your sister or eye her up as she passes. You don't rub elbows with her at a table or play with her feet under the table. You don't do that to a sister. You certainly don't flirt with her or flatter her with words. Treat the women of the church as any respectful, godly man would treat his sister. And what does that mean? You honor her, you protect her, you enjoy her, but do not in any way treat her as an object of sensual desire. 
There can be a battle of the mind that goes on with which you need to deal, and as you bring that to God, that can be a matter that is between you and Him as you deal with temptation. But when it comes to the external, do nothing to cross that line ever. They're sisters. They're in the body of Christ. Treat them that way. It should sicken us to think of doing anything inappropriate with our sisters or to fail to honor and protect them with loyal love. If that would sicken us to think of the sister in our family, that should sicken us equally to think of doing anything of the sort with the sisters in our church family. I speak not, I don't believe, to any particular situation in our church. I speak to preserve us from it. And may God do that. May He preserve us from ever having that experience as a church where there is any man who is inappropriate with a woman in our assembly. Treat her as a sister. Honor, love, enjoy, protect. Nothing that's inappropriate. Now, Timothy's relationship to the women of the church brings Paul to deal now in a fairly lengthy manner with a significant problem that was taking place in the Ephesian church. This problem did have, in fact, sexual overtones, as we see again in his second epistle, not dealt with here quite so much, but we do see evidence of it, of it popping up here in this chapter. But there was within this assembly a number of widows and a track record of problems in dealing with them. There were problems in the way the church was dealing with these widows. There were problems with the widows in the way they were dealing with life. So Paul now turns with considerable length here to discuss this problem. Paul has considered distinctive interpersonal relationships in the family of God, and he now narrows in on the test case of the wisdom of discriminating compassion in the family of God. Interpersonal relationships, now we look at discriminating compassion in the family of God, beginning at verse 3. This is a lengthy passage, and it might seem to miss us largely. I'd like to go through it fairly quickly, but I think there's so much here we do need to sit down in it for a bit and to consider it carefully, and much will emerge from it. So carefully work through this with me, if you will. Verse 3, general principle, honor widows who are truly widows. Honor, that is respect, revere, hold up as very important those who are widowed. This reflects the Old Testament teaching that is so obvious. God has a unique soft spot of compassion for widows and for orphans. We see this repeatedly in the Old Testament. Indeed, God's people should have compassion for widows and orphans if they do not want to incur the wrath of God. God cares about the vulnerable, and you should too. So, honor those who are truly widows. So what does he mean by truly widows? How can you be anything, you're either a widow or you're not. How can you be a truly widow? He'll unpack that below. For now, the general principle, honor those who are truly widows. What Paul does first, however, in verses 4-8, through is that he describes this concept Families are the first responsible party to render care for their widows. Families are to step forward and first of all care for the widows that are in the assembly. Verse 4, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, that is the grandchildren or children, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, let's put ourselves back in this ancient time. We've got to do this for just a moment or two. There's no social security system. There's no retirement accounts. There's no life insurance as we know it. There was a marriage dowry that a wife would come to her husband with a, uh, there would be the purchase of a dowry which intended to help support her should she become a widow or should she be divorced by her husband. But in the case of her husband's death then, a widow could return with her dowry to her father's home or she could continue to live with her husband's extended family. The choice apparently was hers in this Ephesian setting. A widow's support then did not come from the government in any way, shape, or form or from an insurance policy. 
Her support came from her husband's family, who was left after his death, or back in her father's home if he was alive, or maybe a brother or something would take care of her. So Paul is saying, if a widow has family, her family is to take care of her. And the word grandchildren here is broader than the English translation. Her relatives are to take care of her. She's poured out her life to raise children. Now her children and grandchildren are to return serve and to care for her. I read in one commentator, I did not confirm this, but... I read uh, an old commentator that said that old storks return to the nest in their old age where the young exert great energy to feed them until they die. Sometimes, apparently, birds outclass human beings in this regard. You have a widowed mother, take care of her. Caring for one's widowed mother or grandmother pleases God. And why does it please God? Because it accords with His loving and caring and compassionate nature. But this is not going to work for every widow. Verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Now you see the word truly there. That goes back up to verse 3. The one who is truly a widow. This is the definition of a true widow. Verse 5. She is left all alone. There's no family to care for her. In near desperation now, all she can do is pray. She's not in a cultural setting where she can go to work. She's in a situation where she must seek the face of God for His provision every day. In fact, she is praying night and day because that is the only way that she can care for herself. Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 37 might give us an example of just such a woman. Anna, you remember in Christ's birth narrative, gave herself, the text says, to fasting and prayer night and day. I don't think it meant she fasted every day for the rest of her life, clearly, but it meant that every day there were meals that were skipped. As she gave herself to prayer, as she had no one to care for her, this is the true widow. Paul says. She pours out her life to God. He is her only hope. Now in verse 6, we have a contrast. In contrast to this woman who is wholly dependent and devoted upon God, is another kind of widow, verse 6. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. That sounds kind of harsh and it's a little confusing, but we have to remember, Timothy's got the context here. We don't. But this widow is not God-dependent. She is self-indulgent. Paul does not explain. Perhaps she's living off her dowry and her husband's wealth or has become materialistic in some respect in her orientation. She's become about what she's getting and how she can live her life rather than being completely dependent on God. Such widows are, says Paul, dead. That is, spiritually speaking, they are lifeless. They're not the kind of widow that the church is to formally honor. They are not truly widows. Verse 7, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. Who's the they? I think contextually the they is the families. Talk to them about taking care of the widows in their family so that they, these family members, are above reproach. Teach them to fulfill their God-given obligation. To the contrary, verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, you see how verses 7 and 8 fit well together. Teach them to be above reproach, the families, and if they do not provide for their relatives, verse 8, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In other words, unbelieving families care for their widows. How can we who serve the compassionate God of all comfort do less than the world? Families who do not care for their widows have not only failed to exercise their faith, they have denied the faith. Like Peter on the night of Jesus' trial, they deny by their actions that they even know Jesus, the Christ of compassion and mercy. That's his first point, and he brings it pretty firmly home to the church, doesn't he? 
You have denied the faith if you're not taking care of the widows that are in your family. Families are the first responsible party to render care for their widows. Now he moves on and says, secondly, churches are responsible to care for widows who have no support. So he's identified who these true widows are, and then he says the church is to step in for them. Not for those that have family to support them, but for those who don't. Verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. This is the kind of woman you're looking for, says Paul. This is the kind of woman that is to be, verse 9, enrolled. What does that mean? Enrolled does not speak, I don't think, of an enlistment to an ordained office. We have no evidence of such an office anywhere else in the New Testament. But I think it refers to an official list of widows recognized to be truly widows, and thus eligible for full support by the church. It's not talking about here how we could support widows who aren't in this category. He's not talking about how we might help other people who aren't widows. That's not the point here. The point is that Ephesus was having problems. And so he wants carefully to identify those who are enrolled on this list for permanent care by the church. Don't include anybody that's 60 or less than 60. Pretty arbitrary statement. But within the culture of that day, 60 was the noted time when a person became old. So there, it's official and biblical. <laughs> if you're 60, you're old. That's, that, was, that was just where they said that's where you're old. But let's remember... This will help those of you that are 60 or older. But let's also remember that the life expectancy was much shorter. So when a person reached 60 years of age, they were indeed old in pretty much everybody's estimation. So we could maybe bump that up by, depending on who we're talking to, 20 or 30 years, right? It can't be less than 60 years of age. In other words, they have to be seen by the culture as one who is certifiably old. Or maybe we would use the word retired. The point is not that a widow who is 59 cannot be helped. That's not the point. Nor is the point that there's a 60-year-old single woman who the church shouldn't help. Again, we have to keep the context in view. It's this enrollment on this particular list of unique widows. She's to be the wife of one husband. This is the reverse of the one woman man that we find earlier in first timothy chapter three very quickly we can do this once again no i don't believe it's saying that she should have one husband ever so maybe she is a widow twice out you rule her out because she's had two husbands die that really uh, doesn't seem to follow or make any sense besides paul has instructed widows to remarry in verse 14 she would be permanently disqualifying herself for this enrollment by just doing what paul says to do i don't think paul is being self-contradictory here and it's not meaning then that she can only have one husband for life no matter what the circumstances i do not believe that this is a reference to the fact that she must never have been divorced I say that for a couple of reasons, that it reads that way in our English text, but again, the phrase, the wife of one husband, is really not how the Greek reads. It is a one-man-woman. I say that because I think within the context of 1 Timothy and the pastoral epistles, there are four uses of this phrase. It's usually, in the other three, it's the other way around, the one-woman-man. But in the four uses of this, Paul studiously avoids the word divorce. In all four of them, if they meant divorce, he would, it would seem use that in one of those cases. But he studiously avoids the phrase divorce. It could say she's never to have been divorced. It doesn't in all four times. And in a culture where divorce was easily attainable and widespread for men, Paul would be permanently disqualifying women who were divorced unjustly and unwillingly. I think there's reasons to believe this is not his intention. It is thirdly not a restriction of those who were married to more than one husband at once. Polyandry was not practiced and thus would be ridiculous to include it in a list that's clearly not a complete list. 
It would sort of like be saying that we're going to see a pastor come to our church and we want to make sure that he's never assassinated a head of state. You don't really need to say that. You pretty much kind of understand that that's part of the issue. She can't be married to two husbands. I mean, there weren't any women that were married to two husbands. So it would be overkill to put this on the list and unnecessary to put it on the list. I think the idea is that she is to have a reputation of one who was singularly devoted to her husband. This was her orientation in life when he was alive. Verse 10, the qualifications continue and are fairly clear-cut. Though we should stop and say that she was to have brought up children, this would assume that she had children. I don't think it's restricting a woman who didn't. But if she didn't have children, did she love children? Did she care for children in some respect? Did she wash people's feet? That's a custom of that culture in that time, speaking of humble service. Only those who have lived an exemplary life of Christian service in love to others were to be included on the list of true widows. Those who didn't were to be restricted. It's an interesting thought. We'll come back to it. It reveals here in verses 9 and 10 the kind of woman who is pleasing to God. And that I think we should all wake up and consider. Think of this. Paul's saying there are going to be some women who are uniquely devoted to God such that they are above reproach in this area and everyone knows that it would be appropriate for us as a church to care for them between now and the end of their days. What does that woman look like? She's described in verse 9 as one who was singularly devoted to her husband, as one who had a reputation for good works, brought up children, showed hospitality, did the most menial task to serve others and when called upon and cared for the afflicted and was devoted to every good work. That's the kind of woman that all women should be striving to be now and that we should revere as a church. But, contrast, verse 11, refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. I go back to last week and say, here's one of those passages uh, why certain churches don't preach through books. This sounds very demeaning to these women, doesn't it? Well, it is. It was meant to be demeaning. It wasn't because they were women, however, that it's demeaning. It's this is the problem the Ephesian church is having. Let's pick it apart just briefly. The Ephesian church has suffered this scenario too many times. Verse 15 indicates that. Younger widows were put on the rolls, and they were cared for then permanently by the church. And these younger widows, having just lost their husbands, it was probably the last thing for most of their minds to ever even think of remarrying someone again. But as time passes, they become obsessed with remarrying, which puts them in a really bad spot. They're being cared for by the church permanently as widows, but they really want to get married again. There's nothing wrong with remarrying. Paul gives that instruction in verse 14 to do just that. Nothing wrong with remarriage. What is the problem then? Where are their passions coming from and how are they drawing them away from Christ? The problem was that they were abandoning their commitment to remain unmarried and to serve the church. When it speaks of their former faith that they abandon in verse 12, they abandon their former faith. This probably is not the Christian faith as a whole that they've apostatized, but is probably their faith of being part of this order of widows, their former faith or their absolute faith in God to provide. So their first faith is to rest in God and God alone for their provision, as is true of all true widows. But then, after a while, desiring to remarry, they leave this commitment and abandon this aspect of their faith, and it led to all kinds of trouble. Think of this. You've got a young woman, perhaps, who's widowed, 
who has natural desires for remarriage. There's nothing wrong with that, but now she's cared for permanently by the church. Verse 13 explains what happens in that scenario. Besides, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. This has happened repeatedly, apparently, in the Ephesian experience. In this environment, younger widows at Ephesus tended to wander from house to house talking to other women during the day. And they stuck their nose in other people's business and they said things they shouldn't say. Taking their show from house to house, they were dishonoring their pledge to serve Christ alone. They weren't the kind of woman who was relying upon God in prayer day and night. Now they were using their newfound freedom to spread gossip and stick their nose where it didn't belong. This was the problem they were dealing with as a church. The Ephesian church had suffered much along these lines. And the church was getting stuck with the bill. So Paul moves to correct the flaw in the ministry of this generous church that said, you've lost your husband, we take care of you. No, we can't do that, he says. They need to be 60 years of age. They need to meet these requirements before we enroll them in this way. To avoid this characteristic problem in the future, verse 14, he says, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, and manage their households. This is good, decent work. This is what they ought to be doing. Not running around from house to house, lusting for marriage. They should go ahead and get married. There's nothing wrong with that. And pour their energies into their families. Most women, maybe more likely in our culture, but most women who have a household to run and who have children to care for really don't have a lot of energies to get into much trouble. And that's a good thing in the way that it ought to be. We should all operate our lives such that we don't get into trouble. And so he says, let them pursue marriage. And we have to also understand, that sounds pretty harsh to us, tell them to get married. I can just see women today going, yeah, right. Like I can make that happen. But we have to realize we are in a completely different world. The reason we say that is because we assume that every marriage has to start with romance. That was not assumed in the ancient setting. In fact, there was a Roman law that said you had to get married within two years of your husband's death if you were 50 or younger. Again, we look at it and say, that's absolutely ridiculous. But they didn't worry about first having all these romantic feelings and then getting married. And so a woman who was in this situation would have been seen as even being required to be married. So Paul, just fitting the culture of the day, says they should pursue marriage. It's a little tougher in our situation, but this is what he's saying. They should pursue marriage, verse 14, in the middle of verse 14, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. That is, there are those who have been put too early in this order of widows, cared for by the church, have been doing things that bring disrepute to the cause of Christ. We're going to order things within the family so that that doesn't happen. Hang on to that thought. The reputation of Christ and a foothold of Satan to tear in the fabric of the church's reputation are the issues at hand. So he concludes, verse 16, If any believing woman has relatives who has widows, let her care for them. This is just a more specific way of saying what he said in verses 4 through 8. Who's going to be doing the care for the widow in the home? Not a man. And if it's a single man or a widower, As a man, it's obviously not appropriate for him to be taking care of widows in his home. So when it comes to the nitty-gritty of this situation, it's going to be women who are caring for widows in their home. So he addresses them directly. Any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. That's his whole point here, families first. Then, secondly, let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are really widows. By failing your family responsibility, you are throwing upon the church the responsibility to care for widows. Quit doing that, says Paul, to the church through Timothy. But the church should be freed up to care for those who are truly in need. They have no family. They have no hope. They must be cared for by somebody 
as the church, then we step forward and render that care for them. The church is to compassionately take on the full support of widows who have no other means of support and who have attained the age and have the reputation that will make them clearly fruitful in the service of the church for the remainder of their lives. The two objective standards of a functional family, I think, flow naturally from this text. And we see this relationship. First of all, is the acknowledgement of distinctive roles. You can't make this text even work, which means you're really not on the page with the Apostle Paul and how the church should work if we don't realize that there are distinctive roles between men and women and even between age groups. We should recognize these roles, understand them, and celebrate them. Secondly, we have the faithful display of loyal family love. This is not a grocery store where we come in, get our service, and leave and really don't worry too much about the people around us unless we cross paths. This is a family. And within that family, as we carry out those distinctive roles, we are to display loyal love toward those who are in need within the assembly. Fathers, brothers, mothers, sisters, this is how we are to treat one another. Within that family, some are to be treated with particular compassion. Who is that? It's the infant's. It's those in tremendous need. It is those who are widows. Why is this? This is a long section of Scripture in this book. And why is it that God cares so much about widows? Why is it that we should care about widows? I think the first reason is that our Heavenly Father is a God of compassion. and He knows that widows are in a unique situation that needs to be considered. He cares for them uniquely and we should too. But I think beyond this, this is all here because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ cares for His bride, of which widows are full members. Caring for widows in the church is a reflection of Jesus' shepherd care for His people. He saw the church in her need, and He laid down His life in compassion for her to sacrifice His love in her place to give her saving grace. You just need to act the same way in the various relationships of your life. Says Paul to Timothy and the Spirit of God to us today. Now, we have to make a little bit of a jump here, don't we? This situation has nothing to do with our church when it comes to the specifics. We don't have an enrollment of widows who are genuinely widows. Our culture perhaps would not even permit a woman to come to this place of deprivation before caring for her by the state. So we are in a different world. How do we apply? Well, it isn't a stretch at all, is it, to say at least in general principle, families need to take care of one another. We do have life insurance, and we have retirement, and we have social security, And we indeed even have widowed women who are capable of making income in our setting, which is very unlike what Paul was dealing with. But I think the simple rule here is when we have a widow within the context of our family, we need to do what that person wants done. To treat that person with love and respect. There are some widows who say, I really want to keep my house and I want to keep my job and I really don't want you to take me into your home. This is where I want to be and this is how I want to live. Let them live that way. There are others who say, I need care and I'd like to live in your home. Open our doors and allow that to happen. Well, the point is that we put our parents' issues ahead of our own. Your parents will choose where they want to be when they need care. And widowed family members need to be given that privilege. We need to pick up what they cannot do, but do not take from them what they legitimately want to do. There's, for instance, the family who stands up as some great heroic family to care for widowed mom and grandmother who forces her to move from where she doesn't want to move so she lives closer to them. Oh, it makes their life more convenient, but it's not what she wants done. 
We have to be thoughtful about these things and love those with respect that are our parents and all widows that we are to deal with. Now, sometimes there are hard calls that need to be made. Sometimes a family has to take away the driver's license out of love for everybody else in the culture. And that's a hard thing to do. It's not easy. I'm not going to look forward to that day, should God let me live that long, when somebody takes mine away. That's not an easy thing to come to. But sometimes we have to lovingly do those kinds of things. But are we really caring for our parents, or are we really just trying to make our life as convenient as we can with this little problem that we have of taking care of them? There should be a sense of love and respect and self-sacrifice with which we deal with these people who are within our context. There needs to be loyal love. That solves it all. The context is different. The day is very different. But do we relate to our parents with love? You know, that brings us to the honest truth that some of you here are probably already in big trouble. Some of you may be not even teenagers yet, and you're already starting the trouble. As we work to this end, we need to think in caring for our parents, we need to be getting along with our parents. There are some parent-child relationships at times when everybody in the situation just can't wait to get away from one another. This is wrong. And children cannot solve all of the issues here, but they need to be thoughtful about what they can solve. And as we get older and as we relate to our parents, sometimes the relationship can become nothing but one of hostility and frustration. That's not preparing us to take care of them in their old age. We need to be developing a relationship of respect, and I realize that it's a two-way street. So we turn it on the other angle and say, parents, we also need to be developing loving relationships with our children. There are some parents who treat their children like idiots their whole life and then expect the child to take care of them when they get to the end. That's wrong. And we need to be thinking carefully about the love with which we treat one another as we work to this end of caring for people at the end of life or in widowhood. I think we would also apply this as a church not only to this relationship, but to other individuals who are in need. and need to be thoughtful and aware and helpful. But in rendering that care, what I gained from Paul's writings is that we need to express compassion not as a blind governmental agency, but as a family. You note a fair degree of discrimination in this text, don't you? Don't provide for these kinds of widows. The church is called to discriminate. The government can't really do that very well. There's a certain low level of discrimination that they make on who they're going to help, but they can't compare people's moral condition. The church is called to do so. Good parents do not answer every request their children submit or grant their every wish, do they? It might be the case, just for sake of argument, to say that we could have every widow that ever crosses our path say, I want the church to care for me 100%. Paul is saying what to that request in the context of Ephesus? No, that's not going to happen. That's not appropriate. That would burden the church unnecessarily. That would not produce righteousness within the assembly. Good parents don't say yes to every request. A functional church family needs to exercise then discernment in how it will care for its members. And our deacons do this, our elders do this. We as a church consider these issues even sometimes within the body. We don't throw money at every problem. We need to be thoughtful about what the need truly is, who the person truly is, and to respond appropriately. This passage does not address the care of widows who are not on the list, but it definitely distinguishes between people and even renders care on the basis of a person's reputation. We need to bring that into the mix as we consider these matters. The point is that care among families is priority. And a woman who does not show the fruits of saving repentance in her life is not to be fully embraced in this particular way. She's to be exhorted, encouraged, and brought around. But she's not necessarily to be put, in fact, is not to be put on this role. 
So as a family, we need to see our differences, our unique callings, and to relate in love to one another. And in all of this, understand that this is a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who meets the lost person in his or her deepest need. Jesus looked upon us and saw us in our abject poverty and laid down his life to pay the penalty of our sin that he might, by his grace, give his resurrection life and power to those who place their saving faith in him. When we care for the needy within our assembly, in some shape or form, we are displaying this message of Christ crucified and risen. You might look at a widow and say, wow, someone who's to the place where all they have is prayer. They've come to that place of utter dependence upon others, upon God. I'm glad I'm never going to be there. I'm glad I've never been there. We should all understand as we come to close here this morning, you better realize you have been there. Every last one of us must come to a place where we realize our absolute and utter need. Our abject spiritual poverty before God who meets that need through the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. If you've not come to embrace that saving message of Christ, you need to personally do so. You need to reach out and embrace His care, which He gives freely and mercifully to all who come in humility before Him. Let's bow for prayer. We give thanks, our God, for Your goodness to us in Jesus. And we see even within this mundane passage the evidences of the Gospel of Christ and of the salvation that we have in Him. I pray, God, that we would celebrate that rescue that has come into our lives as believers and for any who have not come to saving faith in Christ, that You would help them to see their abject spiritual poverty and to reach out and embrace the permanent enrollment within the people of God. I ask that You'll move to that end and that You will save souls. I pray, God, that You will work within those of us who know You as Savior to grow and to mature in the faith. Thank You for this passage of Scripture and for the time we've had to labor through this extended text. But I pray that its message would overwhelm us as we consider the grace and the mercy of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.